Section 19 of A Treatise on Good Works. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philip Nottis. A Treatise on Good Works by Martin Luther. Translated by Johann Michael Roy. The Third Commandment. Subsections 13 through 15. The power of this prayer we see in the fact that in olden times Abraham prayed for five cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, etc., Genesis 18, and accomplished so much that if there had been ten righteous people in them, two in every city, God would not have destroyed them. What then could many men do if they united in calling upon God earnestly and with sincere confidence? So St. James also says, Dear brethren, pray for one another, that ye may be saved. For the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, a prayer that perseveres and does not cease, that is, which does not cease asking ever more and more, although what it asks is not immediately granted, as some timid men do. And as an example in this matter, he sets before us Elijah the prophet, who was a man, he says, as we are, and prayed, that it might not rain, and it rained not by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and it rained, and everything became fruitful. There are many texts and examples in the scriptures which urge us to pray, only that it be done with earnestness and faith. As David says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Again, the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, and all that call upon him in truth. Why does he add, call upon him in truth? Because that is not prayer nor calling upon God when the mouth alone mumbles. What should God do if you come along with your mouth, book, or paternoster and think of nothing except that you may finish the words and complete the number? So that if someone were to ask you what it all is about or what it was that you prayed for, you yourself would not know. For you had not thought of laying this or that matter before God or desiring it. Your only reason for praying is that you are commanded to pray this and so much, and this you intend to do in full. What wonder that thunder and lightning frequently set churches on fire, because we thus make of the house of prayer a house of mockery, that prayer in which we bring nothing before God and desire nothing from Him. But we should do as they do, who wish to ask a favor of great princes. These do not plan merely to babble a certain number of words, for the prince would think they mocked him or were insane. But they put the request very plainly and present their need earnestly, and then leave it to his mercy and good confidence that he will grant it. So we must deal with God of definite things, namely, mention some present need, Commend it to his mercy and goodwill, and not doubt that it is heard, for he has promised to hear such prayer, which no earthly Lord has done. 14. We are masters in this form of prayer when we suffer bodily need. When we are sick, we call here upon St. Christopher, thereupon St. Barbara, we vow a pilgrimage to St. James, to this place and to that, and we make earnest prayer, have a good confidence in every good kind of prayer. 
But when we are in our churches during Mass, we stand like images of saints, know nothing to speak of or to lament. The beads rattle, the pages rustle, and the mouth babbles, and that is all there is to it. But if you ask what you shall speak of and lament in your prayer, you can easily learn from the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Open your eyes and look into your life and the life of all Christians, especially of the spiritual estate, and you will find how faith, hope, love, obedience, chastity, and every virtue languish, and all manner of heinous vices reign. What lack there is of good preachers and prelates, how only knaves, children, fools, and women rule. Then you will see that there were need in every hour without ceasing to pray everywhere with tears of blood to God, who is so terribly angry with men. And it is true that it has never been more necessary to pray than at this time, and it will be more so from now on to the end of the world. If such terrible crimes do not move you to lament and complain, do not permit yourself to be led astray by your rank, station, good works, or prayer. There is no Christian vein or trait in you, however righteous you may be. But it has all been foretold that when God's anger is greatest and Christendom suffers the greatest need, then petitioners and supplicants before God shall not be found. As Isaiah says with tears in chapter 64, Thou art angry with us, and there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. Likewise, in Ezekiel 22, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, and that stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. With these words, God indicates how he wants us to withstand him and turn away his anger from one another, as it is frequently written of the prophet Moses, that he restrained God, lest his anger should overwhelm the people of Israel. 15. But what will they do? who not only do not regard such misfortune of Christendom, and do not pray against it, but laugh at it, take pleasure in it, condemn, malign, sing and talk of their neighbor's sins, and yet dare, unafraid and unashamed, go to churches, hear mass, say prayers, and regard themselves, and are regarded as pious Christians. These truly are in need that we pray twice for them, if we pray once for those whom they condemn, talk about and laugh at, that there would be such, is also prophesied by the thief on Christ's left hand, who blasphemed him in his suffering, weakness, and need, also by those who reviled Christ on the cross, when they should most of all have helped him. O oh God, how blind, nay, how insane have we Christians become! When will there be an end of wrath, O Heavenly Father, that we mock at the misfortune of Christendom, to pray for which we gather together in church and at the Mass, that we blaspheme and condemn men. This is the fruit of our mad materialism. If the Turk destroys cities, country, and people, and ruins churches, we think a great injury has been done Christendom. Then we complain and urge kings and princes to war. But when faith perishes, love grows old, God's word is neglected, and all manner of our sin flourishes, then no one thinks of fighting. Nay, 
pope, bishops, priests, and clergy, who ought to be generals, captains, and standard-bearers in the spiritual warfare against these spiritual and many times worse Turks. These are themselves the very princes and leaders of such Turks and of the devil host, just as Judas was the leader of the Jews when they took Christ. It had to be an apostle, a bishop, a priest, one of the number of the best, who began the work of slaying Christ. So also must Christendom be laid waste by no others than those who ought to protect it, and yet are so insane that they are ready to eat up the Turks at home themselves, set house and sheepcote on fire, and let them burn up with the sheep and all other contents, and none less worry about the wolf in the woods. Such are our times, and this is the reward we have earned by our ingratitude toward the endless grace which Christ has won for us freely with his precious blood, grievous labor, and bitter death. End of section 19. Recording by Philip Nottis.